Welcome to the Church Pulse Weekly Podcast, featuring leadership author and podcaster, Carrie Newhoff, and Barna President, David Kinneman. This podcast delivers unprecedented insights every week into how church leaders are navigating constant change in an era of disruption and discusses new digital tools to help you stay connected in real time to the people in your church. And now, your hosts, Carrie Newhoff and David Kinneman. Welcome to this week's Church Pulse Weekly. It's Carrie Newhoff here. And uh, hey, happy first anniversary. It's it's sort of one of those weird things because we started this uh, right in the midst of a pandemic, but we are a year through it and you are a year through it. And every week for the last year now, we've been able to bring you leaders who are in the middle of this crisis with you. And we have been all over the place. So uh, as you know, this is something that I do along with the Barna Group, and uh, we want to celebrate by getting in your corner. So uh, today and again on the next episode, we have a long, wide-ranging conversation with Rick Warren. Rick is one of those people who needs no introduction. He is the founding pastor, lead pastor of Saddleback Church, has written books that have sold millions of copies, including Purpose Driven Church and Purpose Driven Life and many others. And uh, Uh, Rick, David, and I go all over the place this week and next week. But here's what we want to do for you as leaders, because it's been a really hard year. Uh, So uh, we celebrate milestones uh, by trying to bless you. And so here's what we're going to do. We got a big giveaway. It's happening on social. So I would love for you to go right now on Instagram and follow the Barna Group. You'll just find the Barna Group on Instagram, or you can follow me as well, Carrie Newhoff on Instagram. So easy to spell. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to give away... A copy of my book. My wife, Tony, has a brand new book. We're giving that away. We're giving away a course of mine, The 30-Day Pivot, giving away Faith for Exiles, uh, David's book, uh, Making Resilient Disciples course, giving that one away, and uh, well, a few other things just for fun. And what you need to do is find us on social, so Barna Group and then Carrie Newhoff, uh, like the post, follow us. Well, I guess you could start there. Follow us, like the post, and then tag three friends in the post. And then on the 19th of March, we are going to pick a winner. And we're going to really, really help that winner, uh, hopefully by getting those resources in your corner. So if you could do that, that would be great. And in the meantime, this went uh, well. This was a great conversation. So let's dive right into the conversation David Kinneman, president of Barna Group, and I had with Rick Warren. Today, we bring you Rick Warren, the one and only Rick Warren. Uh, Rick, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be with you, Carrie. Thanks. I love all your yeah. stuff. Well, by huge... the way, I kind of like Dave, too. He's been a, he's been a compatriot. He's been a, a rabble rouser for as long as I knew him. That's why I love him so much. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a joy. It's the first time you and I, we've connected a little bit just through DMs, but I just want to say a huge thank you. Uh, I was one of the people who bought like the first editions of Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Life, the whole library sitting right behind me. And uh, it's wonderful. As, as I said to David, when I met him, who, you know, from a guy in Canada who finally gets to meet some of the people who've guided him for decades, it's a real joy. So thank you. Thank you. Well, like I said, God has gifted you with a sharp mind and a good pen. And uh, you're helping a lot of, a lot of ministers and pastors and church leaders out there, Carrie. So keep it up, man. It's very humbling. Thank you. Um, Rick, a year unlike anything we ever expected. What has been the biggest, I mean, you know, when you've been in, in ministry for decades, as you have, few things probably surprise you, but I bet you something surprised you. What surprised you over the last 12 months since the whole pandemic started? That, that's a great question. Um, you know, 
it was funny because a year ago in January, uh, every pastor was preaching their 2020 vision message that they thought was very original and very creative. And we were all laying out where we thought the year was going to go. And God was sitting in heaven laughing, going, you have no idea. Uh, okay. And I was just two weeks or three weeks into, it was actually last year, 2020 was the 40th anniversary of Saddleback, the 45th hmm. anniversary of my marriage, uh, my 50th year uh, in uh, ministry, and my 60th year as a follower of Jesus. I've been walking with Jesus for 60 years. And uh, so I was planning all these celebrations there out the door. Okay. And when COVID hit, I immediately switched gears from the message on vision uh, to going through the book of James, because it's a book written to people in transition. Uh, they weren't having a pandemic, they were having persecution. And they'd all been scattered. They'd lost their jobs, they'd lost their homes, they'd lost their friends, they'd been diaspora scattered out. And so I spent the year, I did 31 messages through the book of James. It's only five chapters. Hmm. But there was so much stuff in it. It's kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament. So every yeah. verse is like a different point. And I called it uh, principles for living through a pandemic hmm. or uh, a, a faith that works when life doesn't. And uh, as we go through these five, uh, you know, storms uh, that we saw this last year, then um, I, I was able to deal with each of those storms because it was so relevant and practical to go through it. The biggest change that I have seen in our society is this. Christians no longer get their primary identity from either Jesus or the church, but they last year, this primary identity was through politics. Wow. That is a terrible, terrible problem. Every time, if you know anything about church history, and I'm a student of church history, I've got over 150,000 volumes in my library. I started reading a book a day when I was 14. And if I weren't a pastor, I'd be a church history teacher. But if you know anything about church history, you know that every time the church has gotten in bed with government, it got pregnant. And it was a, it was a bad situation. And today, there are people who would more likely say, well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Paul. And that factionalism, I can't tell you how many hundreds of pastors I've counseled this last year who are seeing the worst conflict in their churches since in America in the, since the Civil War. Hmm. Uh, and and that's, that's tragic. Uh, but there, there's a lot of that going on. And uh, we have to really remember that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that we are to be peacemakers. How, how do you think that happened? I mean, that could be a whole podcast in and of itself, but I mean, you've been around for the whole run from the moral majority through to the 90s, the 2000s. I mean, you've seen different administrations come and go and you've counseled presidents. So where do you think the line got crossed? Well, I think you hit it. I think you, you hit it. In 1980, the moral majority was formed and it was the first of what has been a 40-something year progression where many Christians started putting their faith in government to change society rather than the church. Well, friend, that's not going to work. You, you, you don't change people by laws. There's no law that's going to turn a bigot, a racist into a lover. In fact, the whole book of Romans teaches the law doesn't work for that. 
You need the law for people who aren't going to change, but it doesn't change motives. It doesn't change attitudes. Only Jesus can do that. If I thought that you could change society by passing laws, I would have become a politician <laughs> because I'm interested in changing society. But you, you can't change them without changing the heart. And that's a Jesus thing. Governments can't love. Governments can't transform. Uh, now, l- let me say this. People say, well, are you against government? No, I'm not against government. I am against partisanism. And, and you know, I, I besides Billy Graham, I think I'm the only guy who's prayed for both the Republican president inauguration and a Democrat. For I did it for Bush and I did it for Obama. And the reason why is because I have friends on both sides. I When I first became a pastor, the first thing I did was register as an independent. Uh, so so that I, I wouldn't be co-opted. I have been invited many times to um, speak for, or pray at a Democrat or Republican convention. And I've always turned it down because I see those as partisan. I would do a, a national event that involved everybody, but I would not do a partisan event. And And here's the problem. Pastors now get typically an hour to influence their flock each week, but they're getting three hours of opinion every single night on cable news. Okay. You're not going to win against that. Okay. There are, there is no news station anymore. They're not news. They're three hours of opinion. And the other night I decided that I was going to watch the opposing channels and just compare. And so I watched, I taped one. I watched two hours of one well-known channel and it was all uh, stereotyping and negativism and attacking and belittling and they're the enemy. And then uh, I, I watched uh, the other one and it was the same thing just on the other side. Mm-hmm. And, and they were both both opinionated. Years ago, years ago, uh, I think this is the 80s, Jerry Falwell Sr. invited me to come preach and do a seminar at Liberty. And so he's in a suit and I'm in a in a Hawaiian shirt, but for that day, I, I showed up in a suit and he wore a Hawaiian shirt, which was hilarious because it was okay to be cool to wear it in the 80s. But anyway, um, we're sitting for dinner afterwards and and I said, Jerry, you've raised an awful lot of money. What did you do? He said, the quickest way to raise money is get an enemy. Mm. And I thought, wow, wow, you know, that and, and that and networks are doing that now. They're raising money by belittling the other side. You can count, this is not, that's not new, but it's gotten more bitter. Uh, I mean, politics has always been, they speak about it in ap- uh, apocalyptic terms. In other words, if the other guy wins, the world's going to end. That, that, that's as long as we, we've ever heard. So the other guy wins, it's going to end. Well, I've done a study of, of read through the Gospels hundreds of times, and I can only find two political statements of Jesus. I don't, he, he, somebody asked me the other day in an interview, how, what did Jesus say about politics? I said, almost nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay, almost nothing. And I said, uh, the two things he said were, number one, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God. Okay, pay your taxes. There's nothing in scripture that says taxes should be higher or lower, so don't try to make a case out of it. All right. But the second thing is when he was asked a political question by Paul, he said, well, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. This is not our fight. This is not our fight. There are moral issues. We have a fight, but it's not a political fight. And we also use 
different weapons than the world does, as, as Paul says. So I'm, I'm grieving. I really am grieving that well-meaning Christians have drunk the Kool-Aid and have seen their primary identity as this side or that side or this conspiracy theory or that or whatever. And it's going to take, it's not going to change overnight, but it, it, yeah. but my hope is the next generation. Some of the research we've just finished up uh, asking pastors about some of their concerns and challenges uh, shows that three out of four Protestant leaders say they're concerned about Christian nationalism in our nation right now. One in four say that they're not, which is an interesting thing. I'd love to you to sort of speak to that. And how would you recommend leaders think about discipling when it comes to politics, given sort of the challenges that you've, that you've recognized, like the yeah. digital, the influence of the digital space and media yeah. Yeah. is so profound today. How do we take the venom out of, uh, out of our veins and really uh, exude the kind of Christian yeah. discipleship that we need? Well, you've asked multiple questions there, but Dave is typical. You're on, you're on the money and because you use the word discipleship. It's all, all of these issues are discipleship issues. Racism is a discipleship issue. Financial overspending is a discipleship issue. Uh, political stereotyping bias uh, is, is a discipleship issue. Every one of these show our failure to disciple people uh, as they should be brought into the full measure of Christ, Christ's likeness. And so uh, you have to teach your way out of every problem. You, you have to teach your way out of every problem and, and uh, you just plant seeds and you keep doing. In, in a lot of these though, particularly uh, the key, for instance, I believe the answer to, to racism is storytelling. Um, when you hear people's stories, it changes people. For instance, this last year, you know, we, we're, we're, we're a multicultural church. As I said, we speak 168 languages, but I'm sure there's still racism in our members in, in our church. I'm sure of that because churches are made up of human beings. And if they don't have racism, which I, John Perkins is a dear friend, he said, I don't even use that word because it's, it's like the N word for white people. And he's, you know, you just, you just stereotype them. So, but there, everybody has preferences and everybody has biases and everybody has fears. So this last year when Ahmaud Arbery died and when George Floyd died and that whole run of young black men uh, were being murdered. And Breonna Taylor. Breonna Taylor, that's exactly right. Um, you know, our church went and marched, but, uh, but here's the interesting thing. Uh, the first thing I did is I brought all my African-American staff together on a Zoom call. And I said, okay, guys, I need you to be gut level with me. And I, I need you to know what you're feeling about all this that's going on. And I need you to tell me instances of where you felt demeaned or belittled or, or not even just appreciated, not about a, 10 years ago, but in our church right now, right, right now. What, what have you, where have you seen vestiges of this in, in our church? And um, again, we could do a whole session just on, mm -hmm. on this one. Uh, that meeting lasted two and a half hours. It was excruciatingly painful, it, but it was beautiful. It was real. It was authentic. We wept together. We shared together. It was true koinonia. Uh, it, it was healing, uh, but it was tough. 
And so then I said, okay, at the end, I said, guys, now I need you to take another step of courage. You, you did it with me, but I'm a pretty safe guy. Um, I need you to share everything you just shared with our entire staff. We were having staff meetings every day on Zoom uh, to hold everybody together in the early days of COVID. Then we went to two times a week. And then in the fall this year, we went to once a week. But in that time, we were still doing multiple days. And um, so we brought them on. I've got 500 staff. And so they're all on Zoom and they shared their stories. And what happened was what I expected to happen. It broke the hearts of everybody else. Mm. It broke everybody's heart. And they were going, I had no idea. And my elders, I invited the elders to be on those calls. One guy who's a, a black guy who's one of my pastors of a church, one of our campuses. Uh, he said, you know, Rick, uh, a while back I was up at Universal Studios and we were, uh, you know, just hanging out. I was hanging out with four or five black guys and we were standing in front of a restaurant there on City Walk. And the owner evidently didn't like it. And he called the cops on us. The police came over and arrested us for loitering. Now, do you think it would have been that happened if it was five white guys or six white guys? And he said they put cuffs on us and, and started marching us in front of everybody over to the police station. And I said, uh, my, my cuffs are a little tight. Can you loosen them? And the guy hit me on the head and knocked my cap off and said, just shut up and be quiet. So we get in there. And then he said, we got to see some ID. When I showed him that I was not only uh, a reserve officer in the Air Force, but a pastor of Saddleback Church, they said, oh, we're sorry, you can go. That's blatant racism. Hmm. Okay. And, and, and for people to hear that, and I, I said, you know, guys, Nobody likes to be driving down the street and a red light turns on and you get pulled over. We all get nervous when we have an encounter with uh, law enforcement. But I said, you know, I, I've never worried that I was going to be thrown on the ground. Mm. I've never worried that I was going to be shot, that I might lose my life. I've never worried about driving while black. And, and so I, I just... We need to learn the, these kind of things. Well, then the elders came on and they repented publicly and said, uh, one of my elders said, you know, AC, he's my pastor of Saddleback LA, black guy. AC, I've known you for 15 years. Not one time have we talked about race. I'm sorry. Okay? I mean, we're friends. We're close friends. But this has been like an off limit issue. And I, uh, uh, one of my staff members said, you know, I'm a, uh, a, a black woman in an all-women's white Bible study and said, I have a son the age of Ahmaud Aubrey, And when he died, I felt it. Not one of those women asked me, how does this make you feel? You know, it's, it's all about empathy. It's all about sharing stories. And so then we opened it up. We ended up with 17 and a half recorded hours of staff meeting. Wow. Uh, over seven uh, different staff meetings just about sharing about racial pain. And of course I've got Asians and I've got Vietnamese and Middle Eastern and, and all this. And that was very powerful. Then the next thing I did is I did a Z online Zoom for all the black members of Saddleback Church. Hmm. And I had them all and I said, and I did the exact thing. I need you to tell me your stories. Where, where are you feeling uh, uh, bias or slighted or insensitivity? or whatever. And again, it was tough, but it was beautiful. And I've done a second one since then. And then the other thing I did was um, I, I did a, a call for uh, 
police officers, law enforcement in our church. And I brought them all on. And I knew that was going to be the toughest of all because there is a, a line of defending everything because we feel like we're under attack all the time anyway. And I challenged them and they didn't, some of them didn't like what I said. Most of them said, you're right, pastor. We have seen racism uh, in our midst, but others just wouldn't go there. But I, I, I wouldn't back down on it. I just said, guys, I love you, but you're, you're not going to have the respect until you stop being silent when something happens. I'm so glad you raised that, Rick. And one of the, the, topics that we've navigated on this podcast over the last year has been pastors are actually, according to Barna data, are showing a little more reluctance to talk about uh, racial injustice than they were pre-pandemic, largely because what you said earlier, well, there's some issues, one of them is racism, but the other is, Rick, it's just too difficult. Like it's so conflicted and people get mad and I have elders who are arguing with me uh, and members who say they're going to leave or that this is all about, this is just politics. It's politics 201 in, in, in a different guise. What would you say to those leaders who would say, I'd love to be able to do what you did, but there's just so much flack and tension, Rick. What, what would you say to them? Well, the only way you can't speak the truth until you have trust. All true, all tr- leadership is built on trust. If people don't trust you, they're not going to follow you. So your credibility is the most important thing. Before you can give people the truth, you got to show them that you love them. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Trust is built on feeling like that guy loves me. That, that guy loves me. He genuinely, he, lo- he, he loves me warts and all. He's not going to walk out on me. Uh, he, he's going he's, he's gonna to be a pastor. He's going to be patient with me. He's going to shepherd and care. And so I was able to do those things because I have a long track record of loving people. Mm-hmm. My people know that I love them. They, they know I genuinely love them, um, that I've given 41 years of my life, laying down my life for the sheep. Um, you can fake love for a couple of years. You can't fake it for 41. <laughs> yeah. 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 Either, either people figure out you either mean it or you don't. Mm-hmm. And, and so I would say before you start with a controversial issue, right. you need to put some credits in your pocket by, by building love and showing love and showing respect uh, and listening. You listen to them, listen to them, and then they'll listen to you. That's an important first step. One of the things uh, being largely California-based, most of your people would be in California. You've had some of the tightest restrictions in uh, the nation over the last year. So uh, in-person reopening hasn't really been uh, a, a strong possibility for you. So you've led a virtual staff, virtual teams, virtual church, virtual locations. What are you learning about, the, about that dynamic over the last year? What, what is good? What is, what, what has to change? And because so many people, I think you're right. You've already hinted at this, Rick, that you're like, there are people who say, well, we lost that hour on Sunday until we get it back. There's not much we can do. Yeah. And no, you could, you've got four other purposes to work on that uh-huh. you could be, you could be working on. You may not be able to have group worship, but you can do a lot of other stuff. Um, we, Saddleback may be the only church in America that has more people in small groups than on the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we had when we started this year, we had over six thousand small groups. I have typically on a weekend 
I was having about 30,000 people uh, at our services. Uh, but during the week, we had about 45,000 in 6,000 small groups spread out over 192 cities uh, spread all out. Well, when, uh, when the governor of California announced you can't have church right now, I, I said, now, you know what? There will be smaller churches that can open up before we do. We'll, we'll probably be the, I said, the last thing to open in Orange County will be Disneyland and Saddleback. Hmm. Okay. Because oh, we're the two biggest things, which by the way, we have both been chosen to be super sites for vaccines. And, oh. and uh, we're going to, we're going to be vaccinating probably, I don't know, they think they can do 50,000 a week because of our size. But bottom line is, I said, we're, we're not, we're going to, we're going to be grateful for other churches that can open up before we do. That's okay. We love them. We're happy for them. We're not jealous of them. We're all on the same team, but, but the very sheer size, we could be a super spreader because there's so, so many of yeah. us. But so anyway, we had these 6,000 uh, small groups. I started preaching at the end of every message. If you're not in a small group, you're not going to make it through this COVID at the level of energy and, and comfort and support that you need. So you need to get in group. We started 1,500 new small groups. <laughs> okay. And, and so we, when, when, the small, when the church couldn't meet, we just met in small groups. And then the governor came and said, you can't meet in small groups. And so then we went to online. And we've been doing online since. Now, there are some groups that are doing online, but then they also go meet outside. Okay. And, and they'll do like that. So we're, we're letting them do that. The future, here's one of the things we know. God's in control. He wasn't surprised by this. He's not worried about his church. The church has survived every dictator, every war, every pandemic. In fact, most people don't know this, that the reason Christianity spread so greatly were the two great pandemics of the second and third century. There was the Augustinian uh, pandemic and there was the Cyprian pandemic. And both of those, when there were plagues that came into the Roman Empire, people began to flee the cities in masses because they, they didn't know about germs or viruses. Uh, and they just thought maybe it's the urban area that's that's killing us. So millions of people began to leave. It was at that point, Christians began to move into the city to care for the dying. They moved into the urban areas to care for the dying and in inventing a new way of caring for the dying and showing hospitality, they invented what became the hospital. Hmm. Most people don't know this. We invented the hospital, not government, not business. The Christians Church invented the hospital. That's why most of them say St. Mary, St. Mark, St. Matthews, more, more than anything. Why? Three times, twice in scripture, it says Jesus went into every village preaching, teaching, and healing. One third of his ministry was health care. He didn't just care about the mind or the body. He cared about the soul, all three. He, we don't want to just get people into heaven. We want to educate them. That's why when people say, are you pro-life? said, no, I'm not pro-life. I'm whole life. Okay. I don't, I want that little baby to be that little girl to be born, but I also want her to get an education to not be abused, to not be mistreated, to have equal rights. I, you know, I, I want her to grow up and be what God wants her to be. So the bottom line on this was that in, in healthcare, since Christians have a history 
of preaching, teaching, and healing. You go into any country in the world, the first school, the first higher education, and the first hospital were every one of them were started by missionaries, every single one of them around the world. We know more about education and healthcare than anybody, so we don't have to back down. But going back to your question, we are in a transition, and and what everybody's used to Zoom now. Right. This is going to open up enormous opportunities. You know, every time God's word has been put in a new technology, revival has come as a result. When Gutenberg invented the printing press, God didn't give us the printing press for pornography. He gave it to us to spread the word. And and the Bible, obviously, was the first thing that was printed. Uh, God's word was printed. What most people don't know is that during 50 years later, we had the Reformation because of the printing press. It wouldn't have ever happened without the printing press. Most people don't know that Luther, every two weeks, wrote a new tract. And then they would mass print them and produce them, and they flooded Europe with his tracks. That's how the Reformation happened. It wouldn't have happened without the technology. Every time we got we got the telephone, then we got the radio, then we got TV, then we got the Internet. Now, we, now we're showing a way to use the Internet in Zoom and apps and all kinds of ways, which allow me to sit here, talk to you guys today, and uh, this afternoon talk to a group of pastors in Europe, and, you know, tomorrow morning, talk to a group of pastors in Asia or wherever. And, and so while the, there's a real downside to social media, there's a real upside to the fact that th- this pandemic made an awful lot of Christians tech users. Yeah. One of the um, discussion points that's come up, because you mentioned that, that, you know, no government, we've survived dictators, we've survived revolutions, we've survived pandemics, etc. But any thoughts about the pastors who are saying, hey, the government's trying to suppress the church by not allowing us open, or now there's a conversation about, well, we're going to get shut down on YouTube or social media accounts because we're Christians. Anything you want to say into that space to those who are worried that, freedoms are being curtailed on like in a, in a discriminatory way. Yeah. Yeah. I totally reject that uh, idea. And the very fact that people tried to politicize a pandemic is just dumb. Uh, This is a safety issue, not a first amendment issue. Now you might have a case if everything else opened up except the church. Hmm. Okay. But we're not being discriminated against. There, we went an entire football season. Sporting events are shut down. There are no concerts going on. Theaters are shut down. Restaurants in Southern California are shut down. Uh, and so you can go on and on. If we were the only ones, yeah, I would be the first to raise my hand. So we're being discriminated against. This is not a discrimination issue. This is a healthcare issue. And the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. The most practical way right now you can love your neighbors yourself, wear a mask. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and, and to not wear one basically says, I don't care about you or I don't even care about your fears. You could be the, the, the insidious thing about this virus. And I know all these leaders. I, I knew the head of the CDC, mm-hmm. uh, Bob Redfield, and I, I knew Debbie Burks, and I knew, uh, and I know um, uh, Francis Collins, head of the 
National Institute of Health, they're all good Christian peoples. And we I worked with them for years on other pandemics around the world, and particularly AIDS. Uh, Bob Redfield, who was the head of the CDC during this last year, came to Rwanda and built the program that Saddleback introduced in Rwanda is being copied uh, in the peace plan in different places. These are good people. They're not partisan politicians. They're not trying to, it's not socialism in disguise. We're trying to shut you down. Uh, they're, they're just trying to be careful. And love your neighbors yourself means, uh, well, I said, what's insidious about this is that you could be a carrier and have no symptoms. Hmm. Okay, that's that's a problem. I, I could carry it and, and not have symptoms. And so when I don't wear a mask, I'm gambling without knowing that that I'm safe, that I'm not harming you. Now, let me just say this, because every pastor has had what I've had. I've had enormous pressure to reopen the church mm. from my own members, not from everybody, but from pretty much the people who are watching those three hours every night on TV. Okay? And they're pressuring, why aren't we reopening? Why aren't we reopening? And I'm going, wait a minute, we're winning more people to Christ than ever before. We got more people in groups than ever before. We've got a great ministry to uh, seekers out there in, in through food, uh, all these different things are going on. What are you problem? What's the problem? We baptize more people. Uh, but when they say the pressure's on, I say this. As a pastor, God has called me not just to feed the flock, but to protect it. And that means protecting it physically as well as emotionally and spiritually. I will one day stand before God and give an account of my leadership to him. How well I shepherded this flock. Did I protect the sheep that God put in the stewardship of me? I couldn't imagine going to heaven and saying that I let people, members die because I had such an ego, I needed a crowd to speak to. I'm not willing to gamble the health of my members to nurse my ego that would like to have a live audience, okay? And I said, so I'm not willing to accept that responsibility. But then I said, are you? Those of you members who want me to reopen, are you willing to expect accept the responsibility to stand before God one day? I had three members die this week of COVID, okay, without services. No telling what could happen. Are you willing to accept responsibility for the death of a brother or sister in our family. And you, you have to control the controllables, but trust God for what you can't control. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how long this is, this, this virus is going to last. We, we really don't. You can A lot do longer than we thought it would. Mm -hmm. Certainly you can do scenario planning, but here's, here's something I do have control over the amount of time I spend with God. Hmm. I have complete control over that. And one of the things I've been teaching pastors this last year is a habit that I've been doing every day since COVID started. Uh, and we all talk about a quiet time. Yeah, that's good. But here's another one. It's a habit I call HWFW and uh, HWLW. His word, first word, and his word, last word. Hmm. What I do is I'd say, get a translation of the Bible that you like to read. Set it by your bedside, right by your bed, and open it up and never close it. A closed Bible is easier to ignore than an open one. Leave it open. Pick a book 
the Gospels, Philippians, Proverbs, Psalms, just doesn't matter. Pick a book. When you get up in the morning, before you even get out of bed, you sit on the side of your bed. You don't look at your phone first. You don't look at, don't listen to the radio. You don't turn on the TV. You don't read a newspaper. You don't fill your mind with bad news. Before you do anything else, before you get out of bed, you grab that Bible and you start reading. And you read until something speaks to you. Okay. Say, how long do I read? It doesn't matter. Just till something speaks to you. It may be one verse. It may be 15 verses before you get something. You look for something that challenges you or you look for something that comforts you. Both of those will feed your soul. Something that comforts you or something that challenges you. And when you get to a verse that either comforts or challenges you, maybe you only read one verse, you stop. And you say, I need to think about that. I've memorized many of those verses this past year. I just say, I need to think about that verse. And then I get up his word, first word. I fill my mind with truth before I do anything else. And then at the end of the day, when I get ready to go to bed, the last thing I do right before I put my head down on the pillow is I, that Bible's sitting there open. I've left it open. And I start with the next verse. And I keep reading until something challenges me or comforts me. Challenge or comfort, mm -hmm. both will work, both will feed your soul. And then I go, I'm going to go to sleep thinking about that. And I put my head down. This is he restoreth my soul. Hmm. He gives uh, the word revives the weary heart, scripture says. And, and so what, what we have is people not getting enough input or getting the wrong kind of input. If I listen to three hours of TV a day and I, I, I you know, spend nothing in the word, well, of course, I'm going to be drained. And, and so that's an important thing is to do that. But here's let me give you another one, because just as important as the word. Every pastor needs to schedule a daily connection with people you love. Hmm. Every pastor needs to schedule a daily connection with people. You refill your cup by connecting with, with people you love. Now, obviously, we can't do that with safe distancing, but you can do it with technology. You can do it with Zoom. You can do it with uh, Skype. You can do it with FaceTime. I think seeing like me looking at your faces right now, that's far better than just, you know, audio uh, because we can see each other. We can read each other's emotions, but you need to connect with people. Now, here's the interesting thing. By the way, this is what Paul did. He, he did letter writing, you know, while he's quarantined in the Roman uh, prison, chained to a guard 24 hours a day. What's he do? He writes to his friends. Well, I'm glad he did that. We got the Bible out of it. Uh, but um, here's an interesting fact. The latest research on this shows that it your brain, um, it, it doesn't need a lot of time to be encouraged. When you call somebody on the phone, the most important encouragement comes in the first 30 seconds. Hmm. A phone call doesn't have to be 20 minutes with somebody you love. It doesn't have to be 30 minutes. A two-minute phone call does wonders for lifting people's moods. In fact, as I said, most of the power, most of the encouragement, most of the benefit comes in the first 30 seconds. The fact that you called is an encouragement. Hmm. So as a pastor, you don't have to make these long phone calls to people you love. Uh, just call and say, I just wanted to say hi. 
I love you. How you doing? Praying for you, you know, and, and I, we, we, one of the two new ministries we set up actually revived them. They were, we started them years ago and then let them die. One's called care callers, one called care writers. My, the people who want to serve the most in our church are the, the people who are retired. They've got all the time on their hands. They don't have little kids at home. And yet those are the people I needed to protect the most during COVID. I said, I know you serve, you've served for years, you're faithful, but I need you to stay home. So we're going to invent a thing called care callers. And I'm going to give you a roster and you call through this list members and just say, Rick asked me to call and see how you're doing. Mm. How are you doing? You need anything? Can we bring you some food, toilet paper, you know, what, whatever you need, you're kind of, so we turn shut-ins into ambassadors. And, and we also, if you don't like to phone, well, we'll give you some people to write notes to. And we start care writers. And right now I have over 900 care callers and care writers who've contacted who knows how many people. Rick, you know, it has been, you've kind of mentioned opportunity, but I'd love for you to kind of review the kind of year you've had at Saddleback, because here we are unable to reopen, you know, under the tightest restrictions in the nation. So tell us what's, what's happened. Well, you know, everything we do, um, you know, we try to base it on some kind of scripture, obviously, because uh, if a principle is biblical, it's transcultural. Hmm. It means it'll work anywhere. American methods only work in America. German methods work in Germany. Japanese methods work in Japan. But, but if you get a biblical principle, uh, it's transcultural. You can, you can use it anywhere. And everything that we do at Saddleback is actually based on uh, a number of principles. But one of them is the principle of the parable of the sower. Hmm. And in that, Jesus is unlocking for us uh, uh, a very important truth for ministry you know, you you guys have all taught this that you know the four soils represent four hearts, right. and uh, you know the shallow soil is the the shallow heart, the hard soil is the resistant heart, the the soil with weeds is the busy, preoccupied heart, and the good soil is the good heart. If that is true, and of course it is because Jesus preached it, um, then at any given moment in your life three out of four people aren't open to what you want to share. Oh, wow. Okay. You just need to understand this. At any given moment, only 25% of the population is receptive. Uh, so that's, that's okay. Now, uh, uh, I am not responsible for making soil receptive. That's the Holy Spirit's job. My job as a good farmer is to plant the maximum amount of seed where the best soil is and, and see the results and not waste seed on, uh, on unresponsive soil. Uh, that's a really important principle of stewardship. Uh, don't waste your seed on, on unresponsive soil. It's God's job to make the person responsive and it's our job to sow the seed. So how does God turn hard soil into soft soil? He sends a storm. Okay, he sends a storm. He batters it with a storm. And rain uh, softens the hardest desert, the hardest heart. People are most likely to receive Christ when they're in transition or under tension. In transition or under tension. When major change is going on, it can be a good one or a bad one. It could be uh, just got married, just had a baby, just graduated, just got a new job, just moved to a new area. 
or it can be in negative death, divorce, disease, you know, chronic a loved one dies, bankruptcy, uh, all of those get their attention. Now, uh, what I'm telling pastors uh, during this season is you will grow a church even in COVID if you will stop trying to focus on everybody. Just fo- you will build a church for the rest of your life if you'll just focus on people in pain. Just focus, on, and there are plenty of them out there. It's not my job to take that 75-year-old resistant dude in Pasadena who's lived there for 30 years and already has decided that he's going to church or not and try to convince him. No, no, I'm just going to wait until God softens his soil because one day his wife's going to die. And then all of a sudden I've got his attention. Now, there are social factors that soften the soil. We're seeing them five major storms this last year, five major storms um, socially, but then they're just personal stuff that happens in people's life. And if you teach your members to look for people in pain, see this last year, it wasn't just our banner year for evangelism. Over 16,000 people gave their lives to Christ at Saddleback in 2020. But here's the amazing thing. Almost, well, over 12,000 of them did it through one-on-one witnessing. Wow. The personal, talk about that. the personal evangelism of my members uh, uh, did that. Why? Because we trained them to look for people in pain, to be there in pain, and to share uh, in pain. And, you know, I don't do much of the baptizing anymore because I got a staff. But this last year, I personally baptized over a thousand people, just me, during during COVID. Uh, so we had we had about four or five thousand people accept Christ through our online services, but far more through personal evangelism two to three times more people coming to Christ through, hey, can I help you in your pain? You know, can I help you one-on-one? So it's just look for people in pain. Now, uh, you know, I said uh, there's five storms. Okay, here here, here are the five storms we had. We had uh, what I call the global infirmity. That's COVID, the global infirmity, pandemic. I've been involved in pandemics in the past. We were involved in AIDS for 20 years uh, when it was a big pandemic. And viruses mutate just like AIDS did. Uh, Global infirmity, social um, instability. We saw cities in in Mm -hmm. rioting and, and all kinds of stuff. Cities, social instability, racial inequality. And we went through those series of deaths of young black men uh, which is a big deal for my church because I think we're probably the most diverse church in America. We speak 168 languages at Saddleback. I don't think any church beats that. I've got 20 black pastors on my staff. Of my of my 20 campuses, most of them aren't white guys. They're Indian, they're Asian, they're Vietnamese, they're Middle East, they're African American. Uh, you know, it's a uh, we're we're United Nations, but uh, racial inequality. Financial uh, instability, okay, financial uh, insecurity, uh, and then political incivility with the questioned elections, stuff like that. Any one of those create pain, but five of them dumped on us at once uh, were really the, the, you know, the precursor that allowed us to, to reap a huge harvest this year. And uh, one of my pastors, my executive pastor is on a call with the largest churches in America every other week. And he said, you know, Rick, 
every one of those guys, they always keep talking about, they're so anxious. How do we get the church back open? How do we get the community back into the church? And that's all they're talking about. How do we get the community back into the church? I go, no, 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 we're going to do the exact opposite. How do we get the church into the community? Okay, how do we get the church into the community? Oh, I, we've been closed. How, how is it that you have your, your greatest effective year evangelism and you don't have a public worship service for over a year? Huh? How, do you, how is that possible? Well, it's the same possibility as the first 300 years of Christianity where there were no church buildings and there weren't public worship services. And yet it was the greatest period of growth in the church. It's, you get the church into the community. So we made a list early on of... Um, I said, let's make a list of the 10 deepest needs in society right now, you know, based on these things. And then we'll just go start new ministries for them. Uh, the first one was uh, food, you know, pe people. A lot of people were living hand to mouth. They lose their job. They, they needed food. And uh, Saddleback has three food pantries. We typically, on a typical month, feed a couple thousand families a month that are out of work. But the first month, last March, we fed 45,000 the first month. And so I go, this isn't going to work. We got to invent a new way to do food banks. We got to create, be creative and innovate. And so 126 food banks in Southern California closed during COVID, 126. So we went out and we started a thing called pop-up food banks, where we partnered with all the schools the Board of Education, the Board of Supervisors, and all, and we said, we'll come to you. And, and we started over 400 pop-up sites. And the report I got yesterday, let me read this. Um, okay, over 13,000 of our members have fed over 8 million pounds of food to 552,000 families. Wow. We're now the number one food distributor in Southern California. Saddleback Church is the number one food distributor in Southern California. Well, then we just said, teach them how to share their faith. A lot of those people come through. My worship leader, John Cassetto, the other day said, I led a 50-year-old Buddhist couple to Christ. Said, Tell me about it. So well, I was out in the food lines, one of the food pantries, and a couple came up, and, and uh, we gave them the food. They said, well, what is this? And he said, well, it's actually a church. I said, a church? Yeah. He said, have you ever heard of Jesus? Well, we heard of him, but don't know any about him. And so he explained the gospel and said, would you guys like to get to know him? Oh, yeah, that, this sounds great. And <laughs> he, he led a couple of Buddhists to Christ right there, uh, sitting in their car with their mask on and his mask on. And, man, oh, man. Uh, well, Rick, so, that's quite a year. Yeah. Yeah. Part, part of it is um, uh, I, I think we really were prepared for this. Uh, in ways that maybe some other churches weren't because we, because of this philosophy based on go after people in pain, we are alert to any disaster. Hmm. This is actually the 33rd national or international disaster we've been a part of. So I actually have a guy on staff called the pastor of disaster. <laughs> okay. I think a lot of churches disaster. Yeah, yeah, some that's the senior pastor is the pastor yeah. of disaster, but it's a different meaning. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we we look for people in pain. I mean, when Katrina hit, it hit on a Friday. I got up on Sunday morning and said, "Guys, we got to help these people." There were over six thousand churches in our network alone in the PD network 
that were hit by Katrina uh, and 400 of them totally lost their buildings. 400 churches totally lost. Most of them were small, rural, African-American churches. So I said, we got to help these people. And uh, so I said, let's take up an offering. And, and on that day, our people gave 1.7 million cash. Wow. I get on a plane and the next day I go to Baton Rouge, uh, Houston, Memphis, and where else? One other place, somewhere, maybe Mobile. I can't remember. Uh, I gather all the pastors in the area. I say, okay, you're going to not have time for sermon prep this next year. You're going to have to help people muck out their homes. So here's a year's a free sermon. Let me tell you how to deal with the emotional after effect of this. And, and really, that's what I'm more interested in in uh, in, in, in uh, COVID-19. While the, while the doctors are working on the disease, uh, it's our job as church leaders to work on the dis-ease, hmm. the, the stress that's being caused by all these changes in society, rapid changes and all these storms. We're, we're to work on the dis-ease. And I'm telling you guys, you can write this down and take it to the bank. This next year and even after that, there's going to be a tsunami of grief. Well, that was a fascinating conversation, just part one of our conversation with Rick Warren. And so we'll be back next episode with part two. We kind of went all over the place and uh, just want to say thank you, man. It's been a year like none other. It's just been a year, right? Got a card from Mark Batterson a couple months ago. He's like, Carrie, it's been a year. It's like, yep, it's been a year. Uh, Mark's one of the guests we've had along with so many others over this last year. And we are doing this because we want to be in your corner as a leader. So just hang in there. We're making it through this. We're doing it together together. And we're committed to bringing you the best in interviews that we can produce uh, to help you lead better. And we want to celebrate the one-year anniversary by getting in your corner. So there's a pretty big giveaway happening on Instagram. If you missed that in the introduction, make sure you go to Instagram right now. And here's what you have to do. Just follow uh, Barna Group. It's just Barna Group and myself, Kerry Newhoff. So follow us. And then um, like the post. You'll see all the instructions on how to win. And then tag three friends in the post. And you'll get a number of different books. Uh, David Kinnaman's latest, mine, my wife Tony's, uh, 30-day pivot course. You'll get the Resilient Disciples course and, uh, well, lots of things like that. So uh, we just want to really get in your corner. And uh, thank you so much for listening. We're back soon with a fresh episode, part two of Rick Warren's conversation here on Church Pulse Weekly. Thank you for listening to the Church Pulse Weekly Podcast. Join us next week for more insights on navigating constant change in an era of disruption and how to stay connected to the people in your church.